You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. For our scripture reading in anticipation of our text for today, I'm going to read from Daniel chapter 4, a section in which King Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king, is taught humility and confesses the great truth of the sovereignty of God. From Daniel chapter 4, picking up in verse 29, speaking of King Nebuchadnezzar, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? The words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as He pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back His hand or say to Him, What have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Second Kings, chapter 8. I'd also ask you to turn in the book of praise to Article 13, The Providence of God, found on page 449. You mark that for yourselves. That is something we will refer to throughout the sermon. In Second Kings, we're going to take up our consideration of chapter 8. I've been preaching through a sermon on the ministry of Elisha the prophet, a ministry marked by mercy to God's people, those who would repent and believe and turn to the Lord in faith. And when we get to chapter 8, the tenor of his ministry changes. Near the end of his mission, it, it becomes clear that the Lord's patience with Israel's sin has run out. Their worship of the false god Baal, their worship of the idols of Bethel and Dan has come to an end and the time of judgment has come. Judgment that, as we'll see from our text tonight, will start from the outside and will set in motion events that would bring judgment from the inside and ultimately destroy the worship of Baal in Israel. The story that we're going to consider tonight is short, but it is far from sweet. In it we hear of terrible and distressing things, the ravages of war, Shame and grief, deception and murder. 
the same time, this is an important and pivotal event in the history of redemption. It's not a story that we can skip over because of its unpleasantness. And at the same time, it serves as a case study of the wondrous and comforting truth of God's providence. We see it played out in full here. And it reminds us that there's more than meets the eye in our pilgrimage here in this world as God's people. For we too encounter wickedness. And we too encounter circumstances that we do not understand. We can be pressed to despair when those circumstances are hard until we remember and we believe that the Almighty God, the Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, has everything under control. Everything. As we will see from this story. This afternoon we consider a story that centers on the person Hazael, a man who would be king by God's sovereign appointment through his own unjust acts to execute God's righteous judgment. Hear now the word of God from 2 Kings chapter 8 beginning in verse 7. Elisha went to Damascus and Ben-Hadad king of Aram was ill. When the king was told, the man of God has come all the way up here, he said to Hazael, Take a gift with you and go to meet the man of God. Consult the Lord through him. Ask him, will I recover from this illness? Hazael went to meet Elisha, taking with him as a gift forty camel loads of all the finest wares of Damascus. He went in and stood before him and said, Your son Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, has sent me to ask, Will I recover from this illness? Elisha answered, Go and say to him, You will certainly recover. But the Lord has revealed to me that he will in fact die. He stared at him with a fixed gaze until Hazael felt ashamed. Then the man of God began to weep. Why is my Lord weeping? asked Hazael. Because I know the harm you will do to the Israelites, he answered. You will set fire to their fortified places, kill their young man with the sword, dash their little children to the ground and rip open their pregnant women. Hazael said, How could your servant, a mere dog, accomplish such a feat? The Lord has shown me that you will become king of Aram, answered Elisha. Then Hazael left Elisha and returned to his master. When Ben-Hadad asked, What did Elisha say to you? Hazael replied, He told me that you would certainly recover. But the next day he took a thick cloth, soaked it in water, and spread it over the king's face so that he died. Then Hazael succeeded him as king. Well, the first thing we want to note about this story and the events that we see here is that, that everything we read here was set by God's sovereign appointment. And was, this is not just a declaration of doctrine. This is established by the text. This appointment was announced ahead of time during the ministry of Elijah. Elisha's predecessor. When Elijah ran for his life from Jezebel, you know the story, he ran to the mountain of God and there the Lord sent him back. And he sent him back with a three-part commission that would bring judgment on Israel for their continued sin. It would be devastating, but it would not harm the remnant of God's people, those who were true through faith to him. And we read, if you would look into 1 Kings, don't turn there now, but 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 15 through 18. The Lord said to Elijah, Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. 
Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel Meholah to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and all whose mouths have not kissed him. That was the commission. That was the announcement. That's when the appointment was made. The very next thing we read in chapter 19 is that Elijah went and found Elisha and threw his cloak around him, anointing Elisha. But we never read that Elijah anointed Haziel or Jehu. And we have to ask why. Because God showed mercy to Israel. He showed mercy and he delayed his judgment. We read in chapter 21 of 1 Kings, when Elijah declared God's judgment against Ahab and Jezebel for robbing Naboth, not only of his inheritance, the vineyard, but his reputation and his life, Ahab repented before the Lord. And therefore, in verse 29 of that chapter, the Lord said to Elijah, Because you have humbled yourself, I will not bring this disaster in his day, but I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. So justice was delayed, but that doesn't mean that justice was denied. Shortly after Elijah was taken up to heaven, Ahab died, and the days of his son began when Joram took the throne in Israel. And when Elisha took up Elijah's mantle, he took up not only its authority, but also its responsibilities, which included the yet undone anointing of Haziel and Jehu. And now finally in 2 Kings chapter 8, the time had arrived, the appointed time had arrived for Elisha to fulfill these responsibilities. Our text opens in verse 7 with unexpected news. Elisha is in Damascus. When you read the first part of 2 Kings, you, you, you would remember that Elisha and Ben-Hadad were at constant war. They were arch enemies. Ben-Hadad hated Elisha. He had undone him so many times in battle and made him look the fool. And yet here we find Elisha in Damascus. And we know from the backstory what his motives are, even though they're not expressed, and that he had come to fulfill the word of the Lord to anoint Haziel, king of Aram. Now Ben-Hadad was sick in bed, weak and therefore vulnerable. And when he heard that Elisha was in the city, he did what we least expect. He didn't send orders to arrest him. He sent orders to inquire of him, of the Lord. He commanded his servant Hazael to go to Elisha bearing gifts. He sent Hazael in a way that clearly displayed his humility. He, he submitted himself. He called the God of Israel by his covenant name. He called him Yahweh. He told Hazael to refer to him as Elisha's son, submitting before the man of God and announcing uh, that Elisha had authority. And he was to present Elisha with great gifts, 40 camel loads, of wares, the finest wares of Damascus. Now this was not a trip to Costco where he brought boatloads of things. This was a parade of ornate camels decorated to the full, each bearing a spectacular gift through the city to Elisha. All the people would know that the king had submitted to him. And Elisha would know that they knew. And that it was intended to bring a good response from Elisha. We're not told Ben-Hadad's motives. 
We can't know what his motives were, but we do know that he did he did not demand anything. He asked a simple request, will I recover? He wanted the, the word of the Lord. Would he recover? Because of his weakness, the king sent his servant Hazael, a man who attended him in his sickbed. You may remember the story of Naaman, another associate of Ben-Hadad, a, a man of prominence, a man of public uh, splendor. This man was unknown, a private servant who waited at his sickbed. And from what, what little we're told, he appeared to be faithful and obedient. He appeared to be a good servant. And so by God's sovereign appointment, the time of his judgment against Israel announced through Elijah, and delayed for a season, had come. And so at just the right time in the day of Ahab's son, at just the right place in the city of Damascus, these three men are caught up in events that would accomplish God's holy will for His people. This is an excellent picture of God's providence. And it's what we confess in Belgic Confession, Article 13. So if you look there, it begins... We believe that this good God, after He had created all things, did not abandon them or give them up to fortune or chance, but that according to His holy will, He so rules and governs them that in, in this world nothing happens without His direct, without His direction. The uh, Blue Psalter hymnal translates that last word, appointment. Nothing happens without His direction, His appointment. What was true then is true now. It is the way of our life in this world, whether it be the regularities of life that are mundane, predictable, taken for granted, or the unexpected and often difficult twists and turns of life. Nothing happens in this world apart from the sovereign appointment of God. Well, we learn more of providence as we look at this story. Apart from the king's illness, all seemed well in Damascus. No one suspected, and the king certainly did not, that Haziel, a man who would be king by God's sovereign appointment, would become so through his own unjust acts. No one saw it coming. Children, you have heard the expression, you can't tell a book by its cover. That means you really can't know what's inside the book until you open it and you read it. This is true not only of books, but it's true of people. We don't know what goes on in the hearts of people. We see and hear the outside, but that doesn't necessarily tell us the inside. The Lord told Jeremiah in chapter 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? Of course, only the Lord. Indeed, who would ever have guessed that Hazael would be king or that he even desired to be king? The cover we see along with Hazael, along with the king, and along with Elijah, is that of an obedient servant who did exactly what he was asked to the letter. And that to the letter shows up in the Hebrew. Everything he was told to do, he did to the letter. The perfect servant, or so he seemed. He went and inquired of Elisha as directed, Will I recover from this illness? And Elisha gave Hazael his answer to the king's question in verse 10. Go and say to him, you will certainly recover. You will certainly recover. And then, he went on to make it clear that he knew Hazael's secret, saying, but the Lord has revealed to me that he will certainly die. And he stared at him with a fixed gaze until Hazael felt ashamed. Why the stare down? 
Why the face-off? Because Elisha would make it clear to this man that he knew what was in the book. He knew what the Lord knew. The God had seen his heart. In fact, Hazael's name means God has seen. As the Lord said through the prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 16, the Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And he saw Hazael's heart, and he gave Elisha to see. And Elisha exposed it to this man, and this man felt ashamed. Not ashamed because of his treasonous and murderous heart, but mortified he'd been discovered. What he had hidden so well from all men, especially the king, this man of God had seen. But the Lord revealed much more to Elisha than this man's heart. He revealed things that made the man of God weep. Hazael must have been relieved when the penetrating stare of this prophet melted away in tears. And he maintained his cover as a humble servant. And he asked in verse 12, Why is my Lord weeping? Elisha answered, because I know the harm you will do to the Israelites. And then in horrific detail, he told Hazael how he would not only prevail over Israel on the battlefield, how he would savagely destroy her cities and her people. The assault on Israel would be relentless and devastating, and the prophet grieved for the people of God. And in verse 13, Hazael responded, how could your servant, a mere dog, accomplish such a feat? Now, the NIV here is not as as clear and specific as other English translations. Now, there's two ways this has been interpreted. First, a few like the New King James Version, if that's one that you have. It leads us to conclude that Haziel too was horrified that Elisha would think such a thing of him. And he answers, but what is your servant? A dog that he should do this gross thing? As if he too was wounded by the charge. But most translations like the English Standard Version are more helpful when they translate his answer this way. What is your servant who is but a dog that he should do this great thing? In this statement, we finally get a peek into the heart of this man, Hazel. We get a peek at what Elisha had seen. Indeed, as Jesus said, the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart and he was exposed. So even as Haziel tried to maintain his cover as a humble servant, so one so lowly and insignificant that he called himself a dog, for him to do such things to Israel would be a great thing. Elisha then revealed how it was that he would accomplish these things when he said, the Lord has shown me that you will become king of Aram. This man had ambition. This man had aspirations. The Lord knew it, Elisha knew it, and he was exposed. And it's through this subtle and cryptic dialogue that Elisha honestly answered Ben-Hadad's question. We read this text and we can think, did the Lord lie to Ben-Hadad when he said you will certainly recover? Elisha honestly answered his question, he would certainly recover and not die from his illness. Will I recover from this illness? You will certainly recover. But then Elisha then told Haziel more than he asked for, giving him two additional facts. He said, first, the king would certainly die. And secondly, that Haziel would become king of Aram. But Elisha did not tell Haziel everything. He didn't tell him how those two things connected. King David knew such things. 
King David was a warrior. And he was anointed the king of Israel while Saul was on the throne. And he knew that Saul must die before he could become king. But he never took it into his own hands. He never took opportunity to slay Saul. In fact, on one occasion in 1 Samuel chapter 26, David said, As surely as the Lord lives, the Lord Himself will strike him. Either his time will come or he will die or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. But how would Hazael deal with this information that he would be king and that King Ben-Hadad would die? Well, his own evil desire for the throne of his king was tempted by this news. And unlike David, he would not wait on the Lord. He would be dragged away and enticed by his desire. And his desire would conceive and give birth to sin, and his sin would become full grown and give birth to death. And thus we read in verses 14 and 15 that when Hazael returned to his king, he maintained his cover as a faithful servant. He told Ben-Hadad what Elisha had said. He would certainly recover. And the king was put at ease, and Hazael decided to act before the king regained his strength. The very next day he suffocated the king so that he died, and he took his throne. The treason and murder that were hidden in his heart found expression that day and defined the man. The Assyrians against whom Hazael would later fight were well aware of how he came to the throne. They called him the son of nobody. An insignificant man who had no right to the throne, who had stolen the throne of Aaron. His character was known from that day forward. And we get to this part of the story, and as it unfolds, it reveals the wicked acts of men. And we bump into the difficult side of providence. If God is sovereign over all things, even such things as these, is He not culpable? Is He not responsible? Is He not worthy of blame? It's a valid question. And we answer that question in Belgian Confession, Article 13. So we pick up again where I left off. After confessing, we believe that in this world nothing happens without His direction. We continue, yet God is not the author of the sins which are committed, nor can He be charged with them. And this begs the question, why? Why to when our, to our human minds it seems like He should be? For or because His power and goodness are so great and beyond understanding that He ordains and executes His work in the most excellent and just manner even when devils and wicked men act unjustly. This is indeed a mystery and beyond our comprehension. But this is as it must be as the Lord declares in Isaiah chapter 55 as we read this afternoon as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. When we come face to face with such wickedness, wicked persons, difficult situations, whether they're in the Bible or they're in our daily lives, if we don't step back and remember the truth of who God is and who we are not, we will be befuddled and we will be challenged and we may despair. But when we step back and get the bigger picture that God is at work to accomplish His will, not necessarily our will, 
and He's doing so in the most excellent and just manner. On the day of glory, we'll get to see, just like hindsight today is nearly 2020, and glory it will be 2020, we'll get to see the pieces that we could not understand. And so in our story, Hazael, a man who would be king by God's sovereign appointment, would become so through his own unjust acts before a greater and holy purpose to execute God's righteous judgment against Israel. He had a task to do that filled God's will. Israel, as you well know, was a nation in covenant with God. A covenant that was promised blessings and cursings, blessings for obedience, cursing for disobedience, that they themselves had announced upon themselves when they entered the land. And so the Lord not only foretold Hazael's kingship in his commission to Elijah, the greater purpose that Hazael would serve had been determined long before Elijah. Hazael was chosen by God as an instrument of his judgment against Israel for their continued sin, breaking covenant with him. Most notably, the first commandment, worshiping the false god Baal. Most Right after that's the second commandment, worshiping the golden calves at Bethel and Dan. They were an idolatrous people. And judgment was promised. Moses himself prophesied at this time that this time would come in what is known as the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Beginning in verse 15, speaking of the future, Moses said that Israel made the Lord jealous with their foreign gods and angered Him with their detestable idols. The Lord saw this and rejected them. I will hide my face from them, He said, and see what their end will be. I will heap calamities upon them and spend my arrows against them. Israel deserved what was coming. They deserved what the Lord would bring them through this man, Hazael, a wicked man. God for his own holy purposes and Hazael for his own sinful purposes. Second Kings chapter 10 verses 32 and 33 tell us clearly that in those days the Lord began to reduce the size of Israel. Hazael overpowered the Israelites through their territory east of the Jordan in all the lands of Gilead. And again in chapter 13, verses 2 and 3, we read that the Lord's anger burned against Israel. And for a long time He kept them under the power of Hazael, king of Aram, and Ben-Hadad, his son. Hazael was an instrument in the hands of God, fulfilling a just and righteous purpose. He would commit grievous things, so grievous that Elisha wept for Israel. Even so, they served the righteous judgment of God. God's judgment from outside Israel through this man Hazel would set the stage for judgment inside Israel through a man by the name of Jehu, who's introduced in chapter 9. Jehu would utterly destroy the household of Ahab and Jezebel, and he would destroy Baal worship in Israel, and he would set the stage for even one more event in Judah, which was also infected with the Baal worship of Ahab and his wife. An infection that threatened the line of David. Jezebel's daughter, Athaliah, queen of Judah, killed all the descendants of David except for one, King Joash, who in chapter 11 is revealed to continue the line, but he was that close to ending the line of David. And what does that mean for you and me? If Hazael had not been commissioned by God to do this, 
to prevent the eradication of the line of David, there would be no Jesus of Nazareth. There would be no Savior. Your salvation and mine were impacted by this man, this wicked man. A man who would be king by the sovereign appointment of God through his own unjust acts to execute God's righteous judgment against Israel. And in so doing, to extend the mercy of God through the line of David that leads to his son, Jesus Christ the Lord. When we read a short story like this out of Scripture, it's, it's really easy to forget the bigger story. And the same is true in our lives, is it not? We get in the moment, in the events of today, and we forget the story of our own lives, the story of Christ's church, the story of redemption, that we must find our place. And when we try to evaluate the interplay of persons and circumstances that God is pleased to use in our lives, just as He used in this history of Israel, it doesn't take long before we reach the limits of our understanding. We know that we have arrived at that limit when all we can ask is, why this and why that? And there's no answer other than, God has said so. But when we get to that point, what do we do when we say, I don't understand? Belgic Confession, Article 13, answers that question as well. We confess our answer in picking up where I left off. We continue. And as to his actions surpassing human understanding, we will not curiously inquire farther than our capacity allows us. But with the greatest humility and reverence, we adore the just judgments of God, which are hidden from us. And we content ourselves that we are pupils of Christ, who have only to learn those things which He, had, which he teaches us in His Word without transgressing these limits. Deuteronomy 29, 29 is a good verse to remember at this point. The secret things belong to the Lord, but the revealed things... Reveal things belong to us and to our children forever. These are the things we are to learn and not to strive after that which we cannot learn in this life, the mysteries in the mind of God. So the question comes to you, people of God, as we have heard this story, a tragic story, a difficult story, a wonderful story in many regards, how does the doctrine of providence sit with you? Are you troubled? Are you anxious when you cannot comprehend how the Creator God can rule and govern all things in the most excellent and just manner so that even when devils and wicked men act unjustly, He accomplishes His holy will? Does that trouble you? If we're honest, we're not as troubled when it affects someone else as when it affects ourselves. And when we have that trouble, there is only one answer. And that is to look to the answer that is given to us in the execution of Jesus Christ on the cross as we considered this morning. The most evil and horrible act in history. The Apostle Peter made it clear in Acts chapter 2 beginning in verse 22 that Jesus of Nazareth was handed over to the Jews by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And they, with the help of wicked men, put Him to death by nailing Him to the cross. 
the man, Jesus of Nazareth, who is the King of kings by God's sovereign appointment, was put to death by wicked men who acted unjustly for the greater purpose of satisfying God's judgment against the sins of His people and opening the way of salvation to all who repent and believe on Jesus Christ. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, then your only comfort in life and in death depends upon this pinnacle of God's providence at the cross of Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, the Lord accomplished your greatest good by satisfying His justice through the most evil act the world has ever known. That's the truth. And we must bow before it. And when we do, we recognize that this is God's good and perfect and just will. Then every other circumstance in life gets perspective. There's nothing so grievous as the cross of Christ. And yet there's nothing so wonderful as the cross of Christ. And when we remember this, and by it put our present trials in proper perspective, then the doctrine of God's providence offers you and offers me great comfort rather than trouble. This, people of God, is why we close our confession concerning providence in Article 13 in this way. This doctrine gives us unspeakable consolation For we learn thereby that nothing can happen to us by chance, but only by the direction of our gracious Heavenly Father. He watches over us with fatherly care, keeping all creatures so under His power that not one hair of our head, for they are all numbered, nor one sparrow can fall to the ground without the will of our Father. In this we trust, because we know that He holds in check the devil and all our enemies so that they cannot hurt us, without His permission and will. The depths, the riches, the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable His judgments and His paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay Him? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. And to Him be the glory forever. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank You that You are known to us and have revealed Yourself to us and to all men that You are God Almighty, able to do whatever You please. And we thank You that we know You as our Heavenly Father to whom You have promised to show fatherly care for the sake of Christ. And that You will indeed work all things, all circumstances, to our good. For we have been called according to your purpose. You have loved us so that we would love you. And we pray, Father, that you would remind us in the circumstances of life that you are in control. Even when devils and unjust men act wickedly. Help us to know that you use all things for our good because you have called us in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web 
at www.langleycanrc.org.